There was a McKinsey report published a couple of years ago acknowledging that 94% of journalists in the UK are that come from white backgrounds and 64, I believe, around those marks are men. So if we think that the majority of the news reporters and the news that we read are written, even though journalism obviously should be objective, sure. uh, are written by, at least um, from the perspective of white male, um, it does impact the type of news that we consume. And there are many stories um, that don't get t told and that are not acknowledged and people can't recognize themselves also what is happening necessarily and from the points of views that are being told. So I think that's why also education is an important aspect and enabling the tools of media and pitching and publishing and and storytelling as well as part of the conversation and spark that curiosity and interest that you can also be a writer, you can also be a public speaker, you can also publish your own book. And I think for me, the biggest joy is seeing the women and artists holding their copies of Wowzine with the biggest smile on their faces and saying, I never published anything, you know, I was wow. never even, you know, good at school, like, you know, English at right. school. Or, you know, people have English as their second language language and I think you know that just like gives me so much like immense amount of that kind of creative energy to continue because essentially that's what is needed in the world and that's the kind of yeah spreading joy and yeah all the things that we need a little bit more of <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to How Might We? I'm your host Patrick Scally, as always, and this is the podcast where we tackle society's big challenges in a design thinking workshop style format. And every week I'm luckily joined by a guest who is doing incredible things in a particular field who helps to elucidate the challenge that we're facing and see it from a different vantage point, uh, reframe it for us. And I'm grateful today to have a dear friend, Sarah Carpenin, on the podcast. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Patrick. What a pleasure to be here. How was the last name pronunciation? Perfect. You did well. Perfect, I think, is high, <laughs> too high a praise, but I'll, I'll take it. Um, as I said, we've known each other for, for many years uh, in your various hats. You're uh, editor-in-chief and founder of, of Women in the Wick Media, as well as you've been working at Civic as a storytelling lead and project manager. And you also have your own podcast, um, Go Get a Real Job, which is on a mission to smash the idea of suffering artists, which is something that I think I've been obliquely on a mission to do as well, even without realizing it. And hopefully we get some of that energy in the podcast. But um, for anyone who doesn't know yourself and your work, what's your motive power? Why do you do the things you do? And I guess, how do you explain what it is that you do to people when you meet them? Well, you just did a great job. Um, and... Yeah, I suppose I'm a writer first and foremost, and I really strongly believe in the power of poetry and storytelling. And I think that has been the key element throughout all my my work and, and practices over the years as an artist, as an editor, as a founder of Women of the Wick, and also now at my current role as the storytelling lead as well as at Civic which is a, a London-based um, not-for-profit um, who, who have multiple initiatives globally, including in Ukraine and Gambia, Syria, Turkey, and also across the wow. UK. How do you manage all the, all the hats? I mm -hmm. guess the multi-hyphen is a thing which I guess is slightly divisive, maybe. I think a lot of people see it as an incredible thing and something really great to be able to be across so many different things and exercise all these different creative muscles. Of course, there's also a, a risk to it too, right? To your mental health and your energy and so many things, perhaps, if you're not careful. But I just That's wonder, how do you, um, yeah, how do you find that context shifting of, of all these different uh, works? And, and how do you decide maybe to try a new project like, uh, like Women of the Wick or the podcast? Well, I've held this advice very close to my heart always that it was given to me by one of the first editor-in-chiefs. Um, so I... 
Um, from a quite young age, I started working as a journalist, as a news reporter in, in Finland. I'm from Finland, if I didn't say that already. Um, so, yeah, I started working as a news reporter in national newspapers and then I applied for um, for a job. And then I was asked at the interview. I was studying my master's degree, my master of arts degree at the time. And the editor asked me, why are you applying for this job if you are studying arts? I think he just wanted to hear my answer. But then I got the job and they called me up and they said, well, the reason why we chose you is because you have expertise and knowledge and passion in a certain area. And you are not just the kind of average you know, journalist student um, doing journalism for the sake of, you know, news reporting, but you actually have passion and, yeah, vision for some, something that, that, that I think they felt at least at the time that that news reporting uh, needed in future, like expertise. And I've always thought that that kind of gave me confidence as well, as I've often and always had these multiple interests. And I love writing and I'm an artist as well myself and I'm hyper interested in cities and and creating more livable and equitable communities for artists as well like yeah what is the connecting dot but like i said at the beginning for me it is storytelling and that is the power and the tool how we connect with each other and yeah come together and how do you we say women of the wick as a as a tool for that as a community as well as consultancy which aims to elevate diverse storytelling in cities. Um, why do you you have a, a real internal intrinsic motivation there? But um, I guess over the years, is that something that you've created a, a group of people around you, a network which of like-minded folks, and you saw a gap and then wanted to create the consultancy in the community? What was the, the aha moment or something like that? So, yeah, it's a quite personal story. So I moved to Hackney Wick around 2013, and when I walked into one of the f uh, first live work studios that I encountered, I literally shouted out loud, like, I've come home. <laughs> it was such a beautiful. Yeah, like, yeah, powerful. You felt the feeling. energy. I really felt the energy. And I lived in Portugal before that and traveled quite a lot. And I just, yeah, I've been kind of seeking this sense of belonging, sense of belonging in cities and finding my place as an artist in the world. And, and Hackney Wick just seemed to like answer so many of those prayers, if you like. Mm. And then fast forward a couple of years later, um, as you know, Hackney Wick started going through this very rapid gentrification and most of the artist studios were bulldozed and many of my fellow, um, fr you know, artist friends were pushed and priced out, priced out of their studios. And it was quite heartbreaking to witness something so dear disappear in front of our eyes. And at the same time, um, I was connected with my need to write again and elevate also other um, especially women's voices and I wanted to elevate the women's voices who have contributed to the creative community as what Hackney Wick is known of today and so that was I I had the the, the title or the name mm -hmm. women of the wick very clearly just very early on I thought it was something you know it was going to be like a photography project or something <laughs> something different but um yeah I was like oh women of the wick definitely women of the wick and I started talking with some of the like local artists yeah like hey I would like to photo I was doing a lot of photography at the time and I wanted to like, capture stories and I started writing poetry well that project didn't take on but then I I did a, a podcast um a residency at at Grow Studios, which is just a stone's throw away from where we are at the moment, they happen to have this podcasting equipment there, and I'd never done anything like that before. I never recorded anything in my life. But I'm also a big believer of everything DIY. Sure. <laughs> and I agree. Yeah, right? And podcasting is such an accessible way of... Um, an accessible media, I would say. Um, and it's storytelling. And a, and a form of storytelling as well, exactly. So uh, Women of the Week started as a as a podcast and then quite quickly um, it picked up interest from some, some of the local partners and organisations and I was then asked and consulted to do various of different things. 
Okay, there's a long story, but I'm, I promise there is an end to it very soon. <laughs> Lockdown happened, so ah. I had to rethink everything. I started doing in-person events, etc. And then I just stayed very true to myself and asked myself honestly, well, what is it that I want to do? And the answer has always been that I want to do and run a magazine, a print magazine especially. So that's how then Wowzine was born. Beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful magazine. If you're... Um if you ever spy it uh, in your life, be sure to grab a copy. And I think there's something I love the, the the notion there of the name being something that sits there and metastasizes in your brain when you're thinking creatively. As I'm not really sure what that is, but I like that name. It feels right. Hmm. And maybe I design into that name. I think I I, I I reminisce on the music times, and it was always the uh, coming up with a band name or coming up with the album name. And that was always the torturous thing. Um, but the best ones always come in in the midst of the creative process or probably when you're not thinking about what that's going to be or what it's going to sound like, um, which I always loved as a producer. I would I would name files, really random things, <laughs> which always made it really difficult because then you'd have to go back and be like, what even did I call that <laughs> thing? Um, but sometimes those phrases can be the spark that makes you think differently. Exactly. Um, I love... Thinking about titles, I think that's the editor in me. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. And when they come to you and those thoughts, I think it's, yes, like you said, when there is a little gap, when you are not pushing yourself to do something, when you go for a walk. I love taking walks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are the moments when you get the best, when you receive the best creative ideas. Every episode, we frame our dialogue around a problem statement, which is our anchor, or our guide. And today we are going to roll with the problem statement of how might we make poetry and literary arts more accessible so people from all backgrounds can engage with storytelling and creative expression. I think you, you've touched on some of the personal reasons that are interconnected with that problem statement already. Um, but I wonder, as, as you think about this problem, and uh, you've certainly created a solution for a segment of society already. Um, but when you think about the issue in the round, what do you think are the, the big things which are shaping why people maybe don't engage with poetry and literary arts as much as they maybe once did? And, and also as a subset of that, how it then trickles down into people of different ethnic, ethnic backgrounds or socioeconomic backgrounds? Such a beautiful question, such a profound question as well. And something that I think would benefit from us kind of pausing for a second instead of just pushing an answer down. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I am necessarily even the right person to answer the or trying to untangle and unpack the layers of what the question holds. But I can speak from my personal experience as I always believe in the personal and the power of the personal as well. Before we started recording this podcast, we talked about honesty and authenticity and how we've also forgotten to express ourselves as who we are. And I think that is a key element when it comes to writing, when it comes to using your voice, when it comes to speaking up in a mic. And, And it's that trust in yourself the trust in your own experiences, in your lived experiences, and speaking up truthfully and honestly what you've experienced without shame and trusting and believing that that will connect with someone else in the room as well. I think we are so afraid um, that people don't understand us And I think that creates the division. And for me, that's why storytelling is the answer often for us to connect with one another, whether that happens through spoken word, a piece of poetry, a written article, but that gives us that moment of reflection and that moment of, uh aha, that person is going through something that I can A, either relate to and resonate with, or B, I have no, I had no idea what they're going through. And that creates empathy. And that's 
the beauty of storytelling. I couldn't agree more. I think there's so much humanity in the the ability to spend time with a with a story with characters uh, across history uh, and maybe in the moment that you're in. And it's something that I think over over my life personally, as you said, we can we can most uh, acutely draw from my subjective experience and. I'm the same. I think oftentimes reading stories about people who I can't really understand how they did what they did, positive or negative, are the most revelatory. Um, often think as a as a child, perhaps you learn about war and in history, but you you learn it from the perspective of the victors, or you don't have a very empathetic viewpoint into that. It's not necessarily how you're taught to think about those things. Certainly at elementary school, of course. The later you go on, perhaps that's where the philosophical questions get drawn out but I think there's so much lost in the education of of storytelling to people by not asking them to put themselves in other people's shoes more often and I think we're quite deficient in empathy it seems as a society now when you look at Twitter and 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 the Daily Mail sidebar not that I'm sure neither of us do those things very often but people do them so when we think of who it affects and this idea of how do we engage people to to be more comfortable perhaps in telling their story and understanding their their perspective and, and others in a, in, a, in a more meaningful way. I think, actually, I think really interestingly, there was, I think it was Stephen Pinker in um, Better Angels of Our Nature. He talks about the humanitarian revolution and the, I forget which century it was, but it was the burst of uh, literacy, which was the input factor that stopped people going to things like public hangings mm. because they read stories of pain wow. in a deep way. And it helped people to put themselves and go, I don't want to, see that because I can now feel through a deep story what what that could potentially be to me and that's what I think we need to do kind of over and over again and I think we probably don't do it enough right we don't ask each other how's the other side feeling why are they behaving this way and so yeah I, I agree with you I think there's so much in in that ability to step out of your own reality to engage with people and I wonder what you think as you said with with women of the wick and creating a magazine and a place-based motivation. How do you see the the, the notion inf- importantly affecting, say, a community of people um, mm. with divergent views and perspectives? Like, how do you see the notion of storytelling as a, as a way to create deeper and more meaningful connections between people on a micro level? Well, first, I just want to say to you, Patrick, that you are creating this beautiful intimate moments where storytelling is captured and where you ask brave and big and bold and difficult questions so yeah thank you for doing that I just want <laughs> to you. say that as a re- little reflection and then you might need to repeat the question again to me <laughs> yeah of course well it was a very rambling one mm-hmm. but I think as we're trying to design action into this mm. problem statement this how can we make poetry and literary arts more accessible if we step outside of ourselves and think about others, why do you think they, people from different backgrounds, struggle to engage with this? What do you think are the biggest hurdles in other people's lives? Struggle to engage with what exactly? Sorry. The idea of storytelling or the literary arts. Like, why why is it abundantly um, a well of a value to others and and not some? Yeah, I mean, I often look at it from like kind of statistics and and from the point of view of of media and why diverse storytelling matters um there was a mckinsey report published a couple of years ago acknowledging that 94 percent of journalists in the uk are come from white backgrounds and 64 i believe around those marks are men so if we think that the majority of the news reporters and the news that we read are written, even though journalism obviously should be objective, sure. uh, are written by, at least um, from the perspective of white male, um, it does impact the type of news that we consume. And there are many stories um, that don't get t- told and that are not acknowledged and people can't recognise themselves also what is happening necessarily and from the points of views that are being told. So I think that's why also education is an important aspect 
and enabling the tools of media and pitching and publishing and and storytelling as well as part of the conversation and spark that curiosity and interest that you can also be a writer, you can also be a public speaker, you can also publish your own book. And I think for me, the biggest joy is seeing the women and artists holding their copies of Wowzine with the biggest smile on their faces and saying, I never published anything, you know, I was wow. never even, you know, good at school, like, you know, English at right. school. Or, you know, people have English as their second language. And I think, you know, that just like gives me so much like immense amount of that kind of creative energy to continue. Because essentially that's what is needed in the world. And that's the kind of, yeah, spreading joy and, yeah, all the things that we need a little bit more of. <laughs> yeah, because we create those, we all do those sort of artificial governors in our body that says, in our mind, that we say we can't do this. Or, as you said, I didn't go to school to do this, so I, I, how could I be a writer? But then, as I say, you, you look at those those submissions, I imagine, from when, when you get them and you're, those things don't even enter the radar and you're considering you're just blown away by the, the profundity of the statement or the, the the image that they're creating and I think there's so much in you know just allowing people because to your to your point about um, I guess the, the demographics of, of people who are who are writing in the news media for example I saw a stat around um, from the National Literacy Trust that says 70 percent of young people eight, 8 to 18 enjoy writing either very much or quite a lot outside of school but then a counterpoint to that from 2016 the poetry society membership survey found that the most common age group was between 60 to 74 hmm. uh, just seven percent of their members were under 35 and so oh. i wonder for you creating a magazine to create a new way a new presentation a new framing of how expressive writing can exist do you find that since you've been doing it has it opened up the funnel, so to speak. Have you, have you naturally seen that build and multiply every issue or, or every quarter, whatever it might be? It's, it's interesting because, um, well, I, well, especially I used to go to a lot of open mic nights in London. Right. And it's a very young crowd often who performs on the stage. I mean, it, it can be intergenerational as well, but I think also given those those um, venues, you know, in Shoreditch and in and around Hackney, um, definitely attract more of the younger crowd. And most of the submissions that we receive come from, I, I guess you could call them like Gen Z writers. So I think there is this massive interest and appetite towards poetry. But I think, I mean, we all have these these kind of, not, not what, what do you like to call them? I mean, these moments or parts of ourselves that we don't want to, share with others and and we feel belittled or you know and and I also have those and I realized I was reading writers and um editors yearbook the other day and then there was a there was an article about uh, how to get your poetry published something along the lines and great article lots of tips lots of insights but also there was a very strong um statement from the author from the writer saying that if you haven't read your Shakespeare if you haven't oh. <laughs> you know Gosh. read your kids you should not start even writing and I was like how can this be published in 2024 God. <laughs> because that just kills all motivation and joy and of course yes education is key and yes we should also be reading as, as much as writing but I think that as a starting point comes from a very privileged point of view as well to say that and lacking completely the understanding of different cultures and nationalities and experiences. And yeah, there's a very one-sided point of view. Yeah. And so what do you, those events that you've attended, I mean, what do you, what are the vibes like in those places in terms of, I mean, I've never actually been to, I'll be uh, completely transparent, I've never been to an open mic night with uh, poetry at its core. Um, never been to Speaker's Corner, even for that, now we're in London. Um, and I wonder why there aren't more speakers corners. I don't know. If, is there more? I don't know. Uh, What's the speakers corner exactly? It's in like a. Is it in Hyde Park? It's where um, I think it's been around for, blimey, I think century after century after century. But it's just an open place which is known for people to come and have conflicting dialogue around things. You see it on YouTube and clips all the time. It'll be people from different uh, religious backgrounds, often 
gotcha-ing each other. <laughs> I don't know if that was always the case. But it's, there's something quite beautiful about it when it. it's done correctly yeah. and, and with, um, with care and with love. Mm. Mm. But I wonder, those events which you talk about, which garner that younger audience, do you think there's a way, and do you see it, uh, when, in, the, in the way you try to organise, whether it's workshops on the consultancy side or bigger external events, like how you create those rooms to engage people in the literary arts and poetry differently to, say, how someone who's trying to chin stroke about Shakespeare. I th <laughs> That's going to be our new anchor, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what I don't want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's... Um, Repeated often, but creating a safe space is incredibly important now. How to do that is another question. But I think, again, when we show up openly and honestly to people, people tend to open up as well. Like it's sometimes as simple as that, that you smile, that you create an intimate surrounding. Um, you intro Everyone introduces themselves. Everyone can kind of share a piece of... Um, um, I would say, not necessarily advice, I was about to say that, but I often start any writing groups or network situations even by just giving people their very kind of short interrupted time to talk about whatever they want to do. To, to, to want to talk about so not necessarily your kind of usual bio or pitch of what do I do but yeah there is this kind of you know element of listening and learning and sharing and those are the kind of three key pillars for us when we run any of the workshop events and yeah I like to be quite hands-on as well and do okay. things very yeah kind of practice-led um by doing zine-making workshops and quite unconventional, I would say, even kind of poetry writing exercises. And, yeah, again, it's just beautiful whether I run the workshops for a group of entrepreneurs or more in a corporate setting as well that I've done or for uh, freelancers, you know, be that at uh, whichever situation, is that everyone often comes like, oh, I don't really know if I can write poetry. I mean, I write short stories and all kinds of, and then we do this, free flow writing exercises and they come up with the most amazing coherent pieces and they can't even believe it themselves when they read them out loud and I often then ask people as well to not necessarily to stand up but at least to share them with others if they feel the urge right and it's beautiful like we are all poets if we're just kind of poking the right places <laughs> I agree I agree <laughs> and I think if we think about people from say we talked earlier about younger people, really young people, maybe in primary school mm. or something like that, or even secondary school. I think there's, say, maybe how people think and feel about the notion of storytelling. And, and I think we've all encountered people in life who are great storytellers. True. And they're um, very alluring people, very, um, you, you want to lean in. Mm. And I think certainly if we think about the the professional world, for example, I think there's a version of a great storyteller, which is the sexy entrepreneurs sharing their vision and getting people on board and catalyzing action and then there's the maybe the dated one which as you say is maybe that uh, like a beat poetry bohemian image which is people clicking and yeah. not even cursor clicks it's actual clicks right um and they all but then I, I just wonder how those images get held in people's minds and then how they're maybe used rightly or wrongly in order for them to say whether or not they want to learn how to maybe write or uh, orate in a way and I think something which I can say from, from my experience of my nephew who's about 24 now and um, he works uh, in sales kind of I guess but you would say in uh, in athletics in a, for an athletics company and he's an incredible speaker and can tell the story of the company in a really beautiful way but he's never read a book in his life wow he, he can't do it he's yeah. tried I've even not many times, but I've tried many times, just yeah. things that are in his wheelhouse of interest. I go like, I just buy him it and just see if he gets into it. And he goes, I can't do it. And what it's about listening to audiobooks. Have you, has he he's tried that too. I think it's, it's again, it, but I think whether it's a blocker that's real or not, I don't know. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting for me to think about that heuristic of my mind of thinking, oh, it'd be really great to have all these inputs and you become a much better storyteller. Mm -hmm. Thing is, he's lived the, the thing that he's trying to tell. Mm -hmm. And that's, Oftentimes, I think the the bit that we don't give enough credence to, perhaps, mm. in life is experience. And I do wonder, certainly for young creative people, so much of the the output that you 
create is is a is a result of your experiences, not just the technical component. And I think it's so hard now to be a successful creative that you really lean into the technical. That's so true. Whether it's the 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 discipline or the the getting your name out there factor, right? You're like you're really good at SEO and it's like you just wanted to be good at the violin. I know. <laughs> and I wonder that in terms of how those things sort of break down. I do think there's so much to be said for I don't know how you foster it, but just to foster a consensus around allowing people to live more life in order for them to tell the stories and not become, um, say, specialists in oratory skill. Uh, and that sounds like what you do at your events. You know, you're not saying there's a prerequisite to being a good storyteller. It's your unique way of doing it, which makes you good or bad. And it's subjective. And good and bad don't even probably hold weight, right? Those don't even exist in the lexicon, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder why I've always been super drawn to all things DIY, like I said. This right. kind of having this do-it-yourself mentality um, that I think has always existed, especially in this creative community in Hackneywick, um, that empowers us. I think it does, even though I, you know, I hope two Masters of Arts degrees and, you know, I love studying. I literally love reading and studying and learning new things and I think I'm like a lifelong learner. Um, but then when it comes to, I think I'm, yeah, also so much led by my curiosity. So let's say like I love this studio that you have right now, but I've started recording podcasts like with the shittiest of equipments and just for the sake of, documenting them somehow right. and I should probably be a bit more careful and you know put more emphasis in the quality of things but I think sometimes the act of just capturing something in the moment be that through your phone or whatever that medium and maybe also as women we so often we think oh we have to be experts we're not quite qualified enough and we shouldn't do that and I kind of want to like um yeah uh, break that notion for myself because then I wouldn't do anything that idea that yeah you have to be perfect um remind me of the of the quote that goes no. something along the lines of yeah it's better to how does it go practice makes you no not that one <laughs> great storyteller here <laughs> racking my quote Rolodex <laughs> It will come to you. It'll come, it'll come. Yeah. If it's meant to be, it'll be. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree. And I think there's, um, yeah, I just think what, the, I mean, whether it's the magazine or it's events or the modalities, I think it's creating, as you say, DIY ways for people to just step in. Yes, Step exactly. out of their life as it mm. exists in their, their day-to-day and engage with something like this and exercise that muscle. And, yeah. and what we talked about beforehand, have fun. Bring some joy into things. Exactly. Be playful. That's why Wowzine is called a zine. I mean, it looks beautiful, you know. I can attest you know, to that, yeah. <laughs> um, sort of a coffee table, um, you know, magazine. But actually, you know, yes, we put a lot of you know work into it. It takes a year for us to create an issue. But there is this nod to the roots of creating zines, and especially for women coming together and you know, for whichever courts they are working towards and, and towards equality, gender equality, women started creating pamphlets and it's been used so much in activism and I think that's the ethos for, for us as well in making wowsing and, and, yeah, elevating and amplifying and championing yeah. uh, everyone's voices. And speak to the, the notion of publishing and, and, and I guess not less, less your reason into it, but I guess the state of things and, and maybe say where we are now in terms of of course you've seen things like Substack really take off and and that kind of spurring a new wave of interest in writing which is really nice um i feel like maybe 10 years ago you saw a lot of indie publications and maybe less so now that's just my read but yeah give me a little bit of a your view on on where things are in terms of publishing whether it's digital and physical and i guess how do you see things going that might allow for more diverse voices to take part in literary and poetic work yeah, I mean, in the last year, we've seen a lot of big media struggling. And yeah, that has happened, uh, unfortunately, to to great magazines. And, and, and yeah, I've been asked this question as in like, you know, are you struggling? I need, you know, are you still 
surviving. And but interestingly, I mean, we wanted to start as a print magazine, and and it's just because I absolutely love art magazines and right. always collected them, and I consider them as as a piece of art and and an ob- an art object as well. Like a magazine is an art object on its own right, and I never throw my old magazines away. Um, and yeah, I think there is something like I already shared, and um, that there is something very empowering for seeing writers holding their copies of um, of of the magazines that where their works got you know had published. So I think there is something something special about yeah the the form of of a print magazine. Um, now it is very costly to to publish mm-hmm. print magazines, yeah. and it's not very environmentally friendly either. Uh, necessarily so i think there is a there are pros and cons and yes i mean there are also i mean statistics on how like i think this comes to my mind right now that like 90 percent of people in the u.s have want to publish a book i mean that's a massive people who want to it's probably true though yeah (laughs) um but how many people actually get to publish their books and you know it's just a tedious work and you know takes a long time and it's yeah it's it's a lot of work but no i i don't know i actually there was um there's a there's back in the 70s there was something in hackney called um centerprise and uh, I actually researched that based off a podcast I did with um, Naomi Rubra, who's uh, Footwork, mm. um, a trust which invests a lot in social innovators. And, and I, we talked about this idea of sort of say like sampling the groundwork, like how you would do as a as a you know, when I was making beats, I would I would look back and find samples and weird things and then cut them and interpolate them into something new, right? And we were saying how that sort of doesn't happen enough in terms of, say, community projects. Mm. So, say, great things happen in your community. They have a life, oftentimes a shorter and shorter half-life, it seems now, in society for one reason or another. But they end and they sort of sit in the recesses of, say, someone's mind who no longer is engaged as much in the community and then they sort of fade. And I was just saying how much of the great ideas, there's no new idea under the sun, whatever the old adage might be. And I just think something in something in these ideas around creating physical spaces for people to, as you say, whether it's learning how to write, engage with writers, publish, um, crowdsource opinion on writing in order to maybe get past some of those publishing hurdles. Because as far as I know, I think you know, publishers just have uh, offices full of books, right, that are being submitted that never get published. But so much, there'll be so much great work in there. Yeah. And that first pushback can be enough to stop someone from ever writing again, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're trying to get more people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different experiences, we've got to try to find ways to mitigate for that churn and that that leaky bucket of people who are putting time and effort and passion into something and just as a gatekeeper that just didn't have the time or just didn't understand their perspective. And it'd be interesting to see if rooting those into places, physical spaces, as well as magazines like yourself and kind of crowdsourcing opinion. Because I think that's the great thing about Substack is like I now, for better or worse, read infinitely more online content than I ever used to. Because for a long time, I just thought it was a cesspit, the online media space. I just didn't want to engage. I just thought if I've got time, I should read it. I'll read a book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but I lost a lot in that exchange, I think now on reflection. Mm. And I think what the great thing about what your magazine and physical um, publications can do is it does because it is, as you say, like a coffee table book, it makes you sit down and really take some time and reread it and mm. come back to it. And how often do you do that on a URL? Mm-hmm. I've got so many bookmarks that I think I'm going to go back to. I never go back. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, yeah, how do we create, is is the best way to create that positive, virtuous feedback loop by creating more physical touch points for people to engage with the literary arts? Yeah, it's a good question. And also... Um Maybe this, this is going slightly off topic as well, but going back to your earlier point that I wanted to say how yeah. we have become as writers and and artists and musicians, content creators, you know, we're constantly thinking, how does the, how can I show up, you know, on top of wow. the algorithm? And we start, you know, getting so much away from of our own craft and practice and, you know, competing of against each other as well, which which Instagram has 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 done to us unfortunately yeah yeah that sort of fighting for attention battle 
It is, it is. And I think that, so So again, there is this, um, you know, it's important to remind ourselves of what is our voice and bring ourselves back to what is really meaningful to us. And if it comes in the form of writing and Substack seems like, you know, your form and way of collecting your thoughts together and sharing with the world, great. I do think, however, that there are often these we kind of get very excited on one thing and and then we get also, we have this like fatigue. Oh, it's the same format and the next new things, you know, comes along. So I do think that also holding this um, kind of proven <laughs> methods, if you like, I never considered myself so old school, but now I think <laughs> about, uh, you know, just what does it make you feel like? when you hold a book in your hand, when you yeah. put it in your, when you carry it in your, in, you know, in your backpack, you know, there is just something, I always feel like I'm at home. Like I, I, yeah, the, that kind of, you know, sense of belonging that I constantly see comes for me through reading and right. through the pages of a book or a magazine. And I suppose how that also translates to public spaces and bringing people together that happens on the stage in these intimate poetry nights and places where we can, again, just feel like we can be ourselves and express ourselves Yeah. in the way in which, yeah, we cannot necessarily express in the office or boardroom or whatnot. You know. Yeah, I think there's some... Even um, in a family sometimes. Yeah, I was actually thinking, yeah, so much of that. I mean, we probably would need another hour to go into that, but the ability to storytell in, yeah, in your personal relationships or, or express yourself, be able to use language to, it's a limiting thing, no matter how well you feel you master it, you, you've never quite got the words. Oh, believe um, me, as a bilingual you sure, know, right. poet, there is definitely the constant struggle of, oh, I wish I had said that better. I wish I had found those words earlier. I wish I, you know, yeah. but then there's just accepting again, you as who you are. Yeah. But I, that analog nature of of the work we're talking about here and how it gets into people's hands and there's something quite, as you say, it's existed for for longer than we can comprehend the, the the written word in that form. But I wonder, poetry again, it's something when we think about these disciplines, podcasting and the boom in that. And I wonder why, and maybe this is because I'm a, a layperson in this, but why isn't poetry as pervasive on audio platforms as it might be? Um, you just gave me a new business idea. <laughs> How? <laughs> Cut that out. Um, but it's it's interesting, isn't it? And I do wonder what why that is. And you know, because you can you can see how like meditation, for example, like with calm or something like uh, a platform such as that, you could you could probably have gone back and thought, nah, that's just not how that's supposed to be done. And and then maybe to a truest, uh, a purist, they would go, that's not really the lick. You know, you need to go and do it proper. Mm -hmm. But for so many people, there are so many barriers to them just stepping in the door. And trying it and if those people get the benefit we can create different sections of society that experience it in different ways and i think with poetry or, or, or literary works there's so much or that the idea of like learning how to tell a story i think it's um it's a deeply personal experience and there's so much dignity in that self-exploration and giving yourself a quiet space to explore what it is to, to be or how you feel about things or how how you could see things differently yeah, I think sometimes that is the problem with poetry as well. Like we love writing poetry, but not always love writing, not always love reading other people's poetry or have the patience to sit still and listen. I think, however, when you do do that, the changes happen. And for me, for example, encountering Audre Lorde's poetry was life-changing. I honestly, like something like shook wow. the moment I found Autre Lords, your silence will not protect you. And I've it's been an anchor for me for years, for years, for years. And I always go back to her words and I don't even know <laughs> who I would be as a writer without her words. Wow. I think we have to write the right types of poets that speak to us. But that's why it's just good to to read, to put yourself in those situations that don't necessarily feel like they are yours, like going to a, a poetry reading, a spoken word night, because you never know what you will encounter. I guess that's the scary bit as well. Yeah, scary, 
True. You can't deny that. <laughs> you can't negate the fear of, of reading something out loud, no matter how much you do it. Especially if you're going on the stage as well. I feel like often times I'm so nervous before going on the stage that I just can't focus on anything else. I'm just, you know, nervously reading and rereading my little piece of paper and, yeah, a very short attention span. Well, <laughs> we all have that. That's definitely a, a, that's a common thing. But I, I, again, if we think about, say, the drivers of change over the long term, you know, you, you've created um, the consultancy and the magazine and, and you have your podcast and, and the work you're doing at Civic to, to work with um, social companies on their storytelling. And you think about the, say, looking back over the long arc of time and, and where things are going. And I guess from my perspective, I do feel like we are kind of maybe entering a bit of a, a renaissance in terms of storytelling. I do think the the strategic narrative to more people is getting out there of the power of this beyond, say, uh, intellectual exercise or some navel-gazing thing. I think it's utility in work, in your personal life. I think it is resonating with more people. And I think there's something about the divisiveness of discourse in society now, which mm. for better or worse is creating that. It's creating, I guess, a come on. I never had a click. <laughs> I got the click. You've got the click. I got the click. Um, and I think, yeah, that polarity and, and the, the inability for, for people to maybe, maybe I, I think it's, but that's what I'm saying. I think the renaissance is that, say, in podcasting, for example, you're seeing a lot more where people from different backgrounds come together and talk about things and can give each other the time and the space mm. as opposed to a call in on LBC where someone comes in and just it's one of those shock and awe things and it's just again it's the algorithm right it, it, it gets attention sells ads we move but I do think there's something really deep happening in terms of how people want to express their stories and and learn others stories and and, and offer time and space to do that but I think my issue I think with the technological um, tailwind behind it is it's creating a, a, an isolating experience by being in your air, airpods on your way to work or something instead of in a shared space mm. where you can have question and answer where you can see the whites of people's eyes you can mm -hmm. feel the energy in the room and I think we need to have more steps whether it's at school or in the workplace or in community halls where people bring some of that love for learning through story that others share into real places because I think if they're not in real places I, I do wonder if we're losing some of the value um, incrementally over time yeah absolutely and I think there's a there's a great thing in what you're doing with this magazine and, and creating those moments in time bringing those stories and, and giving them a place and allowing that place to be as long as people want to give it um and to, as I say, if you're in a coffee shop or come, come to your website and, and buy the magazine, and gift it to people Yay. and stuff like that. I think there's so much power in that and really excited to see where you where you go with it. But I mean, for you, when you, you know, if you think think 10 years into the future, in terms of, say, a typical reader mm. of a magazine, for example, is one factor that you're exploring. Mm. What do you, um, what's your dream feeling that they get out of stopping and reading the stories that are in the magazine. What is their feeling? Yeah, what do you what, what would you optimally like them to take from the experience of stopping and reading your publication? I think it will always remain the same. I want every reader to feel like they belong. Yeah, Beautiful. It is a sense of belonging. Powerful words. <laughs> Powerful words. Before I let you go, um, my lightning questions, which I ask every guest at the end of the episode, is a little bit of a further reading and um, an exploration into sides of you that we perhaps didn't get to touch on during the main. Um, so number one, what are two of the most important books in your life? Audrey Lord, Your Silence Will Not Protect You. And the second one that came to my mind immediately is Women Who Run With The Wolves by Beautiful. And you also have your own book, which we could shout out in this moment. <laughs> we can, but it's published in Finnish so far. It's titled City of Women, Tools for Occupying Public Space. 
Boom. Uh, shout out to my Finnish listeners. <laughs> um, number two, who was the last musician or what was the last album that truly blew you away? Mm, what a great question again. The last album that truly blew me away. Mm, well, the last one, I think that I discovered a new one. Okay. No, actually, it is probably Miley Cyrus, Flowers. Banger. Absolute banger. Yeah, I love dancing on my own in my kitchen, listening to it. Such a yeah power album as well. Yeah, Incredible vocals, man. I know. Super. That's like vocal performance. 100%. Uh, three, what profession other than your own would you have liked to attempt? Other than my own? Or the um, many owns of your professional <laughs> exactly. life, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my dream was always been um to become an author um what else um a vet beautiful when i was a kid nice um these ones are uh, a little bit more um from the belly Mm -hmm. um what piece of advice has had the most lasting impact on you my dad's advice go for a walk if you face a problem Legit. Put that into practice right now. I'm a, yeah, profound. Um, what piece of advice would you give to the next generation who are forming their path? Trust your voice. Powerful. And lastly, aside from resources such as money and staff, what is the single biggest thing your industry needs more of? And again, your industry is broad, but perhaps we say for for woman of the wick media maybe i mean equality understanding of the nuances um of gender equality i think there is still a lot a, a lot gets lost in that conversation we think that we have um we've managed it that we live in a completely equal world and again i just think that people don't tune in enough of personal experiences and yeah, the struggles as well that go untold. It's been a real pleasure, and I, I think there's there's so much in this conversation that we can we can send signals out to people who have got positions where they can affect change in this space. And I'm excited to see what people think and feel and share in response. But for anyone who wants to find out more about your work. Uh, connect with you there's i think there's lots of ways they can connect with you and hear more about your your thinking um where are the best places to head online the best places to head online well at women of the wick on instagram of course and also women of the wick.com and you can also find me as at sarah garbenen <laughs> that's how you properly pronounce it <laughs> <That's> <laughs> on instagram you did a great job and um yeah, and, and, and also if you do happen to land on the website, I just want to give this little glimpse of what's to come. As we are a print magazine, we are mm-hmm. undergoing something very exciting, which is also a digital online publication that we've Amazing. just received a funding for. So that will that's in the in the books for us. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Sorry. Patrick. Stuff. Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so much fun and nice. And thank you for creating this beautiful atmosphere and space for me to share my story with you, Patrick. Thank you. <laughs>